What do you remember from your childhood? What are the memories that stand out to you above any others? For those of you who grew up going to Bible classes and Sunday school at church, what do you remember from those classes? Can you still remember your teacher's names? Can you still remember the other people in your classes? Can you remember what you studied, maybe using a, a flannel board or a big storybook? Can you remember how you learned those Bible lessons at such an early age? I was thinking about that this morning as we were walking around and seeing all of our young children that are going to our Bible classes. Our teachers did an excellent job of moving and making sure that they got all of their stuff in the right rooms and of being flexible and of bringing kids in their class, even the younger ones who weren't sure they wanted to be there. They did a great job of convincing them that that was the place to be and everything was going to be okay. And as we, as we were walking through, I thought, it's amazing how many minds are being molded or being taught God's Word right at that moment. Tonight is a big night for our children, especially our children who have been doing our Pew Packers program. For those of you who might not know, we get together 15 minutes before our worship service on Sunday evening, sit on that front row, and these children have learned every book of the Bible, and they've learned the theme of every book of the Bible. And that's impressive. And when we think about children and their ability to learn, I wonder how many of us learned the books of the Bible by learning a song, especially the books of the New Testament. I wonder how many of us learned the names of the apostles by using a song, maybe even the names of the judges. And there are all these lists that, that we can learn when we, when we sing them and we spend time repeating them. I remember just a couple of years ago, uh, one of our, our ladies who had become a Christian here, and in fact her two daughters had made that decision as well. So right after they were baptized, they got together and she said, you know, none of us know very much about the Bible, so I'll make a deal. The first one who can say every book of the New Testament gets to choose where we go eat, and I'll take us all out to eat, and we'll all go out to dinner together. Well, the younger daughter, she was pretty smart, and so she walked into the office one day, and uh, she asked David Shannon to teach her the song uh, for the New Testament books of the Bible. So she learned that song in an afternoon. She went home and she presented that for her mother and showed her that, uh, that she could sing all the books of the New Testament, and then she announced where she wanted to go eat. Now, I wasn't privy to any of that information. I didn't see that happen. I'll tell you what I did see. I did see the mother walk through the office looking for David Shannon, trying to find an explanation. And uh, they, they, have, they have since moved away, but I've thought a lot about that example, about a mother getting her daughters together and saying, let's learn. Let's learn the books of the Bible. And isn't that amazing when we encourage our children to do that? And isn't it even more amazing when we see their capacity to learn those books so quickly? We're going to be looking at the books of the Bible in just a moment. I'd like for you as we begin to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. Excuse me, 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy. This verse was printed in your Sunday bulletins, but I'd like for us to read it together in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul writes these words to Timothy. He writes, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's interesting here that Paul reminds Timothy all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now you remember as Paul is writing this letter, the New Testament canon as we know it, the, the group of letters that make up the New Testament is still being formed. So in this statement is also included the books of the Old Testament. 
Now, as we're under the New Covenant, we don't follow the books of the Old Testament the same way that the Israelites did, the same way that the descendants of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac did, but we can look back at the Old Testament and know it's inspired of God, and we can know it's important. It's described in the book of Hebrews as a schoolmaster, and I wonder how well any of us would do if we decided to start our first day of junior high and immediately forgot everything we learned in elementary school. How do you think you would make it through your first day of junior high if you put away everything that was taught to you in those years beforehand? Well, that's what the Old Testament does. It's a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. It teaches us about the Jewish people. It teaches us about God's law, and that brings us to Christ. So the Old Testament is important. We'll be looking at books of the Old Testament. I'd also like for you to flip over to 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 3.16. So from 2 Timothy 3.16 to 2 Peter 3.16. He's talking about Paul here, and Peter writes, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. So even Peter admitted that some things Paul talked about were difficult to understand. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. And notice this, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So here in one of Peter's letters, we see that the writings of Paul are being included in scripture. And so as we look at the Old Testament, we know that's profitable for us to learn. We also know it's profitable for us to learn the New Testament. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And so what we're going to do is go through the books of the Bible. If you did not grab an outline on your way in, a, a little handout that has blanks to fill in, you can just grab a scratch sheet of paper and, and make some marks and take some notes as we go through this. And I've already had a couple people ask me, uh, don't worry, there won't be any testing and... Uh, you know, you can, you can look on your neighbor's paper and that'll be fine as we go through this. But I want us to really notice what our children have learned about the Bible as we begin. And after we're done with our worship service this evening, uh, after our dismissal prayer, our children will come down front and if you would remain seated, they're going to show you what they've learned. And they'll get a chance to show you what they've been working hard on. And they have been working hard on it. They've done a tremendous job. So I wish we'd all stay around for just a couple of minutes and watch them uh, display that knowledge. Before we get started, let me make a couple of disclaimers right off the bat. Uh, first of all, we're going to be looking at pictures that will tell us about the books of the Bible, and they'll also give us catchy ways to remember a key word or phrase from that book. Now, not all the books can be summed up in just one word, so occasionally we'll have to take parts or, or, or bits or images from that book to remember it by. I was asked if, if I drew these. I did not draw these. I wish I was that creative and artistic. Uh, this is a published curriculum we're using, a walk through the Bible. And as we go through, some of the pictures will be silly. Some of them will be just goofy and a little bit off the wall. The purpose is to help us remember the book and to remember the key word. And that's the only purpose. So as these pictures, they might make you laugh a little bit. It's okay to giggle a little bit if you see something you think is, uh, is a little silly or maybe a little off the wall. It's not meant in any disrespect, just in a way that we can make sure those, those names stick in our minds. And I think you'll be surprised how much we can learn just by, by looking at a picture. So let's get started. If you've got your, your sheet, you'll notice all the books of the Bible are listed. And then we've also got a place for you to write down the key word or phrase for that book. So let's get started with the first one. The very first one in the Old Testament. You see here, it's spelled out for you, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. You'll notice that in the word Genesis, Genesis has one letter bigger than all the others. It has a big N. So when you think of Genesis, you think of beginnings. Okay, so when you think of the big N, think of Genesis, beginnings. I told you they would be cheesy, so it's okay. They're, they're not, 
you know, they're, they're not all hilarious, but they are good ways for us to remember it. Big N. So when we think of Genesis, it's a book of beginnings. It's a book of firsts. We see the first plants, the first animals, the first man, uh, the first temptation, the first sin, the first murder, all these things taking place in the book of Genesis. It also shows us that from the very beginning, God created us, that he loves us, and that he has a plan for us. From the very beginning. So the, the key word to remember when you think of Genesis, you think of beginnings. And so let's go to our second book of the Bible. This one's probably a little bit easier to figure out. You have a large group of people wandering through the desert, and they're crossing through an exit sign. So the second book of the Bible is the book of Exodus. We think of the book of Exodus. The key word to remember there is exiting. It begins where there's a Pharaoh who rises up. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know Joseph's family. And all of a sudden, the Israelites are slaves, and they're working for Pharaoh in Egypt. And so God sends Moses to deliver his people. And so this is a very significant book. In fact, the events in the book of Exodus, as we see Moses lead the people out of Egypt, are going to be very significant for the Israelites for years and years to come. That's going to form their image of God as a deliverer, someone who delivers us. And so it's a very powerful image, so it's important to remember. When we look at the book of Exodus, we're thinking of exiting. And you, we remember the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt, and we also remember the Passover being instituted because of that. And so the Moses begins to lead them through. Let's look at the third book. The third book of the Old Testament is the book of Leviticus. Now you're going to have to follow me on this one. All right, we have a man right here, and he is holding the left foot. He is giving the left foot a kiss. If you say that fast enough, it kind of reminds you of Leviticus. And uh, he's also wearing Levi's, so he's of the tribe of, of Levi. And you can see here that he's holding two items in his hand. One is a plate full of money, and one is a plate of food. When we think of that, we think about uh, not just the offerings that were given, but also the sacrifices. And so we think of the feast instituted, and we think of offerings. Feast and offerings. That is what Leviticus is about. Leviticus is a, a list of laws and commandments. Sometimes it's difficult for us to read. Sometimes it is, is dry. That is the infamous place that when you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, it starts to slow down and you get bogged down as you start reading about all these offerings. But at its core, it's a beautiful book. Because what has happened here is you have an unholy people. And they are trying to follow a holy God. So God provides them these feasts and offerings as a way that he can dwell with them. So it's really a gesture of love. Every law in there is a gesture of God's love. I will dwell with you if you will just do this. And so God provides them a way that an unholy people can live with a holy God. So Leviticus, we remember, feasts and offerings. That's the key phrase from that book. As we go further in the Old Testament, we see in the fourth book, which is probably pretty obvious, uh, the book of Numbers, we have numbers. And these numbers are wandering around in the desert. You can tell they don't know where they're going. The key word for numbers is wandering. And so when we read through numbers, we read about the people of Israel, that they come out of Egypt and everything is looking good. They were given the Ten Commandments. And then as, as they go through, you'll remember they send those 12 spies in to scout out the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. That's where they're headed. But you remember only two of the spies believed that they could enter into it. And so because of that, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. And so Numbers tells us about that wandering. Also in Numbers is when Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it, and that, that one act where he rebels against God's word, and therefore Moses isn't able to enter the promised land. That's found in Numbers chapter 20. And so Numbers is very important as we consider the, the progress of the Israelites. 
So when you think of numbers, you think of wandering. All right, let's look at the fifth one. Now, the fifth book is, uh, is a little bit more of a stretch, if you can imagine. But you have, uh, you have the first law, which was given the, the Ten Commandments, as we see given in the book of Exodus. And then here, we have what they call the second law. The reason uh, they say that is in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds everyone of what has happened up to that point. So in Deuteronomy, we have the law restated. So you have the second law. Now, you're going to have to follow me on this. You have these two tablets. They're singing a duet. They're singing a duet, and they're also running. And I'm not sure what to think about this, but uh, Stephanie Porter tells me that that looks like me laying down, so this might make it a little bit easier. Um, they are doing a duet running on me. And so you have duet run on me and then Deuteronomy. And the theme of Deuteronomy is the law. So the key word for Deuteronomy is law. Moses is restating the law. He's telling them uh, before they enter into the promised land, he's reminding them where they've been. It's very important, and there's a lot of rich history there. Let's look at the next book of the Old Testament. This is the book of Joshua. You'll see here Joshua is a general. When Moses is not in charge, Joshua takes over command. And as they go into the promised land, that conquest wasn't something that just happened overnight. There were several battles that God had to lead them through. So when we think of the book of Joshua, we think of conquering. Joshua was a conqueror, and he led the Israelites through there. We have the famous Battle of Jericho as they marched around the city exactly to God's specifications, and the walls fell down. We have the story of Achan. When Achan took something that he wasn't supposed to take, spoils that weren't his, and because of that, Israel suffered in their next battle. And so we go through and we see all of these exploits, military exploits of Joshua. And so that's important for us to remember. Joshua and we remember conquering. As we move through, we'll go to our next book, and that is Judges. You can see here, you have someone who looks a whole lot like a judge. And it's interesting that not only is he a judge, but he's also on a motorcycle. Key word for judges is cycles. Not the kind of cycle that that judge is riding, but the kind of cycle Israel went through. You'll remember in the book of Judges, the judges would lead the people, and after a while, the people would be, would be good and focused on God for a while, then they would rebel against God. And then God would allow them to be overtaken by another country, or another nation, or another group, and then they would decide they wanted to serve God again, and God would deliver them. And you have that obedience-disobedience cycle that happens over and over again in the book of Judges. So when you think of Judges, you think of cycles. It just keeps taking place you have that same occurrence. They obey, then they disobey, then they decide to obey again. God is good to them. He lets them be taken over, and they disobey. And so it's something that's continued. Let's go on to the next book. This, of course, is the favorite of all our elementary school children, uh, the story of Ruth, because Ruth is a love story. And uh, our, our children love to talk about the love story. As we think about Ruth, we see the love she had not only for Boaz, whom she would later marry, but also the love and the faithfulness she had to her mother-in-law, to follow her to her country on the passing of Ruth's husband. And so it's, it's important for us to remember that. And you've heard those words that Ruth says to Naomi, probably read at weddings, and rightfully so. They're, they're words of faithfulness. And so it's, Ruth is a wonderful example of the kind of love that we should have. And then we see Ruth and Boaz. And it's interesting that Ruth is not only an ancestor of King David, but she's also uh, an ancestor in the line of Jesus. And so it's very important for us to remember when we look at that book. Let's look at the next one. Okay, this one is another one that's a little bit tricky at first. You see here we're on a beach, and there's a mule made out of sand. 
Some might call it a sand mule. So there's only one sand mule. And so when you think of that, you think of 1 Samuel. So the next book of the Bible is 1 Samuel. Now there's only one sand mule, and look who's on it. It is King Saul. 1 Samuel is about Saul. He's holding a saw, just in case you forget his first name. And so as you look through, you see that he's got the, the armor on. He was a, a warrior, and you see that he has his crown on. And when we begin in 1 Samuel, the people want a new king. They get Saul. He stands head and shoulders above everyone else. He looks the part, and he does well for a time. But then he starts to fear the people more than he fears God. And once that begins to happen, then things begin to, to go bad in a hurry. And so we see eventually Saul dies a, a very disgraceful death just because he cared more about what people thought than obeying God. So that's important to remember. First Samuel is about Saul. Now the next book, we have two Samuels. So that's Second Samuel. And there's a different individual here in Second Samuel that's featured. His name is David. And he was the one that you'll remember that Saul tried to put his armor on when David was going to go fight Goliath. Saul eventually sought to kill David, but David did succeed him as king. And David was a man after God's own heart. We know that David wasn't perfect. In fact, 2 Samuel tells us not only about David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, but what happened to David's family. We read about Absalom, the son of David, who grew to be so popular and grew to be so taken with himself and, and power-hungry, he even challenged his own father for the throne. And so that happens in 2 Samuel. As we go through to the next book, we see that there is one king standing right here. He's got a big number one on there, and that represents the book of 1 Kings. So we have 1 and 2 Samuel, now we begin 1 Kings. And 1 Kings is about Solomon. Key word to remember there is Solomon. You'll notice he's all by himself, he's a solo man, and he's also very wealthy. He's not only got a crown, but he's got a very fancy robe, uh, a money bag he's holding right there. And you'll notice the money bag is torn a little bit. It's split. And that's to remind us that it's shortly after Solomon's reign as king that the kingdom divides. The kingdom splits. And then you'll notice all of, all of the wives behind him. And remember that Solomon had 700 wives and then 300 concubines. He was one of the wealthiest, one, probably the wealthiest individual we have record of in Scripture. And so Solomon represents 1 Kings. Let's look at the next book, 2 Kings. Here we've got two kings. You'll notice that these two kings are on an aisle, and the trees behind them form a big X. And that's because the key word for 2 Kings is exile. What's happened as the kingdoms have split, they'll both be taken over, they'll both go into captivity, they'll both go into exile. And so we see the beginning of that in 1 Kings, right after the reign of Solomon, as Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom. And then in 2 Kings, we see that continued as they go into exile. Let's look at the next one. Here we have a boy holding out a chronicle. It's one chronicle for the book of 1 Chronicles. Now, the book of 1 Chronicles covers much of the same material that we'll see in, in part, of, part of 1 and 2 Samuel. But it covers it from a little bit of a different perspective. Rather than focusing on, on politics, it focuses more on the moral history. So we get some different insights. We can use both of them together to get a really good picture. And First Chronicles is also about David. You'll notice he's there and he has his harp. And uh, he also has his crown to remind us that he was the king. His heart there, he was a man after God's own heart. So First Chronicles is about David. Let's look at the next one. Second Chronicles is about Judah. 
Second Chronicles focuses mainly on Judah. We don't get much information about the kingdom of Israel that had split off uh, because so many of their kings were, were evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but we do get uh, some, some information about Judah in Second Chronicles. And so those are our historical books that give us some background on how the nation of Israel progressed. Let's go to the next book. As we look at the next book, we come on the book of Ezra. You can see here there's an S saying Ra, so you're thinking Esra, Ezra. And he's standing there, and there are two people in this picture. Or there are two objects in this picture, the temple and the people. That's what, that's what we need to remember with Ezra, the temple and the people. We see the end of the Babylonian captivity in the book of Ezra. We see Judah return to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the city, and Ezra is there to help them do it. And so we especially see that uh, they face some opposition. They're going to rebuild the city walls as well as the temple. And so the temple rebuilding gets underway. We have the temple and the people. And that's the focus of Ezra. Let's look at the next book. Now, Nehemiah is the next book. You'll notice that the uh, people are knee-high to him, and then there's a, a knee right there in, in that guy's map in case uh, you didn't get the joke the first time, which is pretty hard to miss. Uh, Nehemiah, when you think of this, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is building a wall. You remember, he begins the book working as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He hears about his nation going back to rebuild the city. He wants to go help them, and he's going to rebuild the wall. And so it's such a beautiful story of a man going back to lead, their, to lead the people. They're going to rebuild the wall. The theme for Nehemiah is wall. And so that's important for us to remember as we go through. Let's look at the next one. Here we see a queen, and she's sitting on a Persian rug, and uh, she's, she's got a, a Persian cat right there, and she's stirring something. She has a big S. It's an Esther. And so we remember her as Esther, Queen Esther. That's the book of Esther. And you'll notice she's the queen, and she's the queen of Persia. And so when we go through, we read about what happens as Mordecai and his cousin Esther. Esther is, is taken before the king. She's chosen to be his queen. And then all of a sudden, they uncover a plot from a man named Haman. Haman is going to get a decree passed that would mean certain death for, the, for uh, the Jewish people, for Esther's people. And you remember that dramatic scene because Esther has to take a stand and she goes before the king and she doesn't know if the king holds up his scepter, then she'll be fine. He might not. And then she would be under penalty of death. She's taking her own life into her hands and because of her bravery, she's able to pass a decree that lets her people fight for themselves. And so that preserves the nation and they're able to fight the decree that comes down to them. So remember Esther. Let's look at the next book. Here's a man you can see has been through quite a lot. Uh, you can see that he is obviously looking very sad and also that uh, he has bandages, sores all over his body. This represents the book of Job. And this character here is, the, book of, is uh, the character Job we see there. And Job is a book where we have a man who loses everything and look whose hands he's in. Uh, he's in God's hands. And so the theme of Job is that God is in control. God is in control. No matter what happens, Job complains about the injustice he feels is being done to him. God responds not by defending himself, but just reminding him, I'm in control. And so that's the book of Job. Let's look at the next one here. Is we have two palm trees who one is, we can see is singing and one is praying. And the palm trees remind us of the book of Psalms. Psalms is the next book. And we see singing and praying here. And Psalms is all about worship. These are, these are songs and prayers, pleas to God. We see the psalmists at their highest highs and their lowest lows. And no matter what emotion we might be feeling or where we might be, we can find a psalm that applies to that moment in our lives. 
So the book of Psalms, key word is worship. All right, let's keep going as we look at the book of Proverbs. You've got your wise owl there, and he's pointing to a proverb on the board. And so the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. Wisdom is the key word for the book of Proverbs. We have wise sayings. A fool and his money are, and then, as the proverb would go, soon parted. And so there are all kinds of other short sayings uh, that are, are there. They're, they're so much more than, than just small phrases that, that, might be, that might be cute or might sound good. They're really life-changing principles for us to apply. So Proverbs and wisdom. Let's look at the next one. Here we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Now this one probably seems pretty obvious. There's nothing on the screen. Ecclesiastes is about emptiness. Or as some translations would put it, vanity. Vanity of vanities. The message of Ecclesiastes is life without God is empty. And so we have someone who had everything you could possibly imagine, tried to find happiness everywhere on earth, was not able to find it unless he had life with God. So life without God is emptiness. All right, let's look at the next book. This is Solomon again. He's returned. He's singing a song. So we have the Song of Solomon. Now, Song of Solomon is a book that is a love song between Solomon and his bride, and it, it describes love in marriage. So that's the key phrase for Solomon. Song of Solomon, love in marriage. As we go through, we begin to get into the prophets. Let's look at the next book as we begin the prophets. We have the book of an I, an I saying ah, so we're reminded of Isaiah. And so Isaiah is the next book. You'll see we have one person groaning, and we have one person who's, who's excited. And so we think of groan and glory in Isaiah. Groan and glory. The reason we think of that is because Isaiah prophesied from God. He prophesied some things that were hard to hear, but he also prophesied about the Messiah that was coming. So we have groan and glory in the same book. Let's look at the next prophet, Jeremiah. You can see he's standing there. There's a, there's a jury beside him. So you remember Jeremiah. He's standing there and he's holding a rotten sash. This was not uncommon for God to do with prophets to use some peculiar object lessons. And this was one of those in the book of Jeremiah. He tells Jeremiah to go bury a sash, to lift it up, and to see that it's ruined. And that represents what God's people have become and how they are in his sight. And so it's very effective. So remember, Jeremiah, the key word, rotten sash. That's one of the communi communications God makes. Jeremiah and a rotten sash. As we look at the next, we see, next book, we see another one written by Jeremiah. This is the book of lamentations. You can see we've got a lamb there who is lamenting, uh, and she has uh, tears that are falling. The theme of lamentations is tears. You see, Jeremiah gets the nickname of uh, the weeping prophet from this book because he is seeing his city, Jerusalem, be destroyed. He's lamenting that. So lamentations and tears. Let's look at the next one. Book of Ezekiel. We've got the big EZ there, so it reminds us Ezekiel. And you'll see the key word for Ezekiel is dry bones. Here's one of the object lessons Ezekiel got to witness. Walking through the valley of dry bones, God tells him to prophesy to those bones, and then God brings those bones to life. And so even though Israel is cut off and they're dead, God can still bring them to life. And so it's a powerful message. Ezekiel, dry bones. All right, let's look at this next one. Here's one that might be more familiar to us. Book of Daniel. Daniel is sitting there. We know it's Daniel because he's in the lion's den. And uh, he's dreaming about lions. And so when we think about the book of Daniel, we think of dreams. And you remember the ability that God gave Daniel to, uh, not only the ability he gave him to interpret dreams, but also the visions Daniel receives later in the book. So when we think of Daniel, we think of dreams. 
Okay, let's look at the next one. Here we have another prophet by the name of Hosea. And you remember that with the garden hose illustration. And uh, as we think of Hosea, Hosea was called to do something that is incredibly unpleasant, and that is he was called to marry a woman whom he knew would be unfaithful to him. That was a living, breathing illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so he marries Gomer. She is unfaithful. And so he, he is there, and, and he is really feeling uh, just a bit of what it feels like when God's people are unfaithful to him. So we think of Hosea, we think of unfaithfulness. That's the key word for Hosea, unfaithfulness. Let's look at the next prophet, Joel. We see, uh, we know it's the book of Joel because they're eating jello, and I guess that's the closest thing they could think of to the book of Joel, uh, jello. But the, the individuals eating jello are, are locusts. The key word for Joel is locusts. Joel is warning them of a plague of, of, of locusts that God is sending. And so that's a, that's a word of warning that Joel is giving. Joel and locusts. Let's move on to the next one. About this, uh, we have uh, a moose right here. And this is... Uh, Jordan Huddleston's favorite. Uh, we have Amos, and we think of Amos when we think of this book. Amos. And what is that moose holding? He's holding a plumb line. And when we think of a plumb line, we think of a standard, something by which everything is measured. Amos was saying that God's word is what we should measure by. God's word is the plumb line. So we think of Amos, key word is plumb line. Okay, as we keep going, we look at Obadiah. We have an O and a, and a bed, so it's Obadiah. Now, the theme of Obadiah is brother's keeper. What had happened is that way, way back in, during the patriarchal age, we had Jacob and Esau. And you remember, Jacob's descendants became the Israelites, who would later become Judah. Esau's descendants became the Edomites. Well, what happens later is the Edomites get together with another country, and they attack Judah. And so God is saying that Edom has not been a very good brother to Judah. And so we have brother's keeper. And Obadiah is prophesying against Edom and against what they've done. So that's what we remember when we think of Obadiah. Let's look at the next one, another one that might be more familiar. The book of Jonah. When we think, look at Jonah, we think of a big fish. Jonah reminds us of a big fish. And uh, you may have heard the story of Jonah as he was told to travel to Nineveh, decided he didn't want to, and God used a big fish, among other things, to change his mind. And so that's what we think of when we think of Jonah. Let's go to the next one. Here we have a Mike standing right there. That reminds us of Micah. Micah is the next book. And we think of Micah, we think of a day in court. We can tell that because they're in court and there's a son there uh, to represent the day. He's delivering a message to Jerusalem. He's taking them to court and he's found them guilty. So when we think of Micah, we think of a day in court. All right, let's look at the next one. Nahum. This is pretty easy to, to guess what it's about. It's about a flood. You remember the city of Nineveh that Jonah was told to go to. Well, they reverted back to their old ways, and God is saying that you will be destroyed in a flood. And so we think of Nahum, and we remember flood. Okay, as we continue to work our way through the minor prophets, let's look at this one. We've got a, a man with a backpack, and it's a ha backpack, so we think of Habakkuk. And when you think of the book of Habakkuk, you think of this tower he's on. It's not just any tower, it's a watchtower. And so uh, God tells Habakkuk to be watching for his actions. See, Habakkuk thought that it, it was unfair that God was waiting to punish Judah, and God tells him to watch, to be on a watchtower. And so that's the image we think of with Habakkuk. The next book is Zephaniah. You've got a Z with a fan, a Z fanning, Zephaniah. Now, Zephaniah, the theme for that is the day of the Lord. You can see the sun again representing day. 
the day of the Lord. Zephaniah was talking about the day of judgment that would come, the day of the Lord, and so we, we think of day of the Lord specifically with that book. Let's look at the next one. The book of Haggai. You see he's hugging in the eye right there, the Haggai, Haggai, and he's, he's there and he's standing on the temple. What happened is when the temple had begun to be rebuilt, it wasn't finished. So Haggai, the key word there is temple. He was telling them to come back and rebuild the temple. Let's finish what we started. Okay? Let's look at the next one. Zechariah. The Z isn't fanning this time. The Z is crying. And so we think of Zechariah. Now if you look, Zechariah is looking forward to the Messiah. And we think of the book Zechariah, we think of prophecies about the Messiah. This is very important. Let's look at the next one. Here we have a mallet. We think of mallet, we think of Malachi. And you see, Malachi, the mallet is striking hearts of stone. And so when we think of a phrase to, about Malachi, hearts of stone is the phrase we think of. He's prophesying to people who have hearts of stone. God wanted to break those hearts. Okay, so that is the entire Old Testament. We'll race through the New Testament, but... Can you, can you believe it? We've gone through the entire Old Testament, and we found a theme for each one. Let's look at the New Testament. We'll begin with the Gospels. The first one, he's there on a, a mat that has a U on it, so we think of Matthew. Now, the, the theme for Matthew is the king. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings. And so, and Matthew shows Jesus to be a king, king above everyone else. Let's look at the next Gospel. We have here an M. Mark. We've got Mark. And so Mark is here, and what is he doing? This, this man is serving. He's serving an ant. So we think of the word servant. The key word for Mark is servant. Jesus is a servant in the book of Mark. He is always doing things for other people. Mark uses the word and more than any other gospel writer. And Jesus did this. And Jesus did this. He's constantly serving. Let's look at the next one. Here we have a physician. And when we think of a physician, we think of Luke. Luke, the beloved physician there. And he's checking out the perfect man. The perfect man. Jesus is the perfect man. And so when we think of a phrase for that, we think of Jesus is the perfect man. And let's look at the next one. The next gospel has the J on switch. Think of John. And uh, John is painting a picture of the Son of God. There's a son right there in the middle. Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And so John is giving us a portrait of uh, being the Son of God. Let's look at the next one. Here we have a book of Acts. You see a big Acts right there. And you can see what happens in the book of Acts. The key word for Acts is church. The beginning of the church in the book of Acts. And that's a powerful book for us to read through. Let's look at the next one. Here we have a, a man holding a, a two oars. You could say that he was a Roman. And so here we have the book of Romans. The theme for Romans is paid in full. Because our, we were all guilty, and Romans tells us in Christ, it's been paid in full. Our debt's been paid. All right, let's look at the next one. Here we have uh, one apple core. We think of core, and, uh, and also the, uh, the Indian apparel he has on. We think of Corinthians, all right? That helps us remember Corinthians. Now, the first book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is about correcting the saints. The church of Corinth was involved in some things it shouldn't have been, Paul wanted to correct the saints. Okay, let's look at the next one. Here's the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's defending himself. He's showing them the anatomy of an apostle. That's the phrase to remember, the anatomy of an apostle. What is a true apostle? People were saying Paul wasn't one. So what does it take to be a true apostle? All right, let's look at the next one. Here we have a gull that's laying on an egg. So we think of Galatians. And then also you can see what's happening in the book of Galatians. 
that the goal is being freed. And so we think of release with the book of, Galatia, book of Galatians. Release. Released from the old law, now we're under a new law. Release. Let's look at the next one. Here we have an E. He's going fishing. We think of Ephesians. All right? And uh, on the end of his line, he's got a bodybuilder. The key word for Ephesians is bodybuilding. And not physical bodybuilding, but building up the body of the church. And so that's very important in the book of Ephesians. Building up the church body. Body of Christ. Let's look at the next one. Here we have, uh, as, we, as we look at this bull who is flipping ends, we see the book of Philippians. And remember, that's a happily humming bull. And so Philippians is about being happily humble. And so that's the key word for Philippians. Paul is writing it from jail, but he's happily humble. All right, let's keep going real quickly. Here we have a collision. We, think, we see a collision, we think of Colossians. All right, the book of Colossians, we see we've got a collision between a commander and chief. And so the key word for Colossians is commander-in-chief. Who is our commander-in-chief? And Colossians has one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus in the opening first chapters that is... Uh, is just an incredible source of comfort as you think about who our commander-in-chief is. Let's look at the next one. Here we have one thistle and one onion. We have the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so 1 Thessalonians is right here. You can see that they're trying to stay on the target. That's the key word for 1 Thessalonians. Stay on target. Don't lose your focus as Christians. Stay on target. Okay, as we think about that, we think of 2 Thessalonians. And look right here. He is working while he's weighing, and that's pretty close to what 2 Thessalonians is about. Work while you wait. Work while you wait. Some people were so excited about the coming of, second coming of Christ, they just quit their jobs. Paul is saying, wait a minute, let's work while you wait. As we go through to the next book, we see that you've got a group of moths right here, and one of them has a tie. There's only one tie moth, and so we think of one tie moth, 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy, as you can see, uh, one of the moths is... Uh, reading right there, is a leadership manual. That's the key word for 1 Timothy, leadership manual. Paul has put a young leader here at church. How do you lead? What do you do? How is the church led? And so 1 Timothy is a leadership manual. Let's look at the second one. Here you have two timoths, and in the middle of them you have a very calm bat. So you have 2 Timothy, and that's a combat manual. And so as we think about, uh, as we think about going into spiritual warfare, 2 Timothy is a combat manual. Let's look at the next one. Here's another one of uh, the young men that Paul mentored, Titus. You see here he's playing the tie toss. That's how you can remember. Now, you can, you can tell the one playing the tie toss is a duck. He's also a con. And so Titus is a conduct manual. That's the key word for Titus, conduct manual. How should we act as Christians? Let's look at the next one. Here we have a single file of lemons that are leaving prison. You have a file of lemons, Philemon. That's the next book you think of. When uh, we think of Philemon, we think of the phrase, from bondage to brotherhood. Paul has intercepted a runaway slave. He has converted him and sending him back to his master, saying, accept him not only as a slave, but also as your brother. Bondage to brotherhood. Let's look at the next one. Here we have uh, a man brewing. He's brewing something. He, he brews this, Hebrews. And so we think of the book of Hebrews, and we look, we have from milk to meat. And Hebrews is wanting to get us from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. Hebrews is written specifically for those who would have had a Jewish upbringing, showing how Christ uh, in the new covenant is far superior. Let's look at the next one. Here you have a J. He's aiming. And as J aims, we think of James. And uh, you'll know the book of James is a faith gauge. If you want to tell whether you're living a faithful life, read through the book of James. 
That will challenge you. James is a faith gauge. Let's look at the next one. Here we have one uh, single P tier, and uh, so we think of 1 Peter. And uh, as you can tell, he's being stitched up uh, by a porpoise, and so the theme of 1 Peter is pain with a purpose. Not quite porpoise, but purpose. Pain with a purpose. People are suffering for being Christians. Peter says there's a purpose behind the suffering. All right, pain with a purpose. Let's look at the next one. In 2 Peter, uh, as we read the verse 2 Peter 3, 16, he's dealing with poison in the pew. That's the phrase for poison in the pew. People who are teaching things that aren't right. And Peter is, is telling them how to deal with it. 2 Peter, poison in the pew. Look at the next one. Here we've got one single yawn right here. We think of one yawn, 1 John, and 1 John is a fellowship gauge. How to have fellowship with God. How to have fellowship with one another. And so uh, 1 John is a fellowship gauge. The next book, as you can probably guess, or 2 John. You have two yawns here. And 2 John, the theme is lock the door. Lock the door. The reason that's the theme is John was dealing with some false teaching, and he was saying if someone's staying at your house that's teaching something wrong about the Messiah, don't let them come back. Lock the door. Don't allow them to teach what's false. Let's look at the next book. We have three yawns here. Third John. Now, in here, John is saying, open the door to the ones who are truly teaching what is right. You have lock the door and then open the door. And as we speed through here towards the end, let's, let's get these next, this next one right here. As you can see, he's practicing judo. That reminds us of the book of Jude. Uh, and what he's doing is he's fighting. He's fighting for faith right there. Jude is about a fight for faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. And that's what Jude is about, reminding us to fight vigorously for our faith. And then lastly, we see here, pulling back the curtain, receiving a revelation. Think of the book of Revelation. A revelation describes coming events. That's the theme for Revelation, coming events. The vision from John, what's going to happen? And uh, the ultimate message, of course, is that God reigns over all. I appreciate you indulging us with extra time there as we've gone through every book in the Bible. I also wish you'd stay around to see what our children can do as they know every book and every theme. Uh, that's found in those books. Obviously, as we think about every book of the Bible, it all points to one, in one direction, and that is the direction of the cross. Everything before the cross points to Jesus. Everything in the gospel leads, Gospels leads up to the cross, and everything else points back to it. And as we gather around that cross, we see what Jesus has done for us. We realize that we need to respond to that action. We need to begin in faith, end with following His Word, confess His name, turn our lives around, and be buried with Him in baptism. And as we think about the cross, which all these Bibles point to, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we know Jesus? And the way to know Jesus is to believe His Word, to follow it, to be immersed in baptism, and then to walk in a new life with Him. And if you want to take that step to know Jesus, please do so as we stand and sing together.